Find uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, if you would please. And tonight we're dealing with the subject matter, dealing with opposition and discouragement. Dealing with opposition and discouragement. Of course, last week as we went through chapter 3, we saw how everybody, everybody was given a certain amount of the work to do. And... Uh, they were given a section of the work to do that would have been near and dear to them in front of their homes or their businesses. And what an illustration for the church that I mentioned, that everybody in the church is to have a role and a function and a job because we've all been given a spiritual gift. And so chapter 3 is really a lesson to us in that regard. Well, we saw how in chapter 3 they progressed along very nicely with, with the work. Nehemiah couldn't do it all by himself. He got everybody involved. It was very successful. And now on the heels of that, we come to the opposition that they faced in chapter 4. And so I want to talk tonight on the subject matter dealing with opposition and discouragement. Verse 1 says... Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, 
who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be on guard, may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Now folks, as we continue in this series on the book of Nehemiah, we've come to a very difficult topic to discuss, a topic that every believer is all too aware of, sadly. And that topic is the topic of what? Opposition. Opposition. You know, the Lord Jesus told his disciples, beginning in John chapter 15... He said, the world is going to hate you. The world's going to despise you. They're going to mock you. They're going to put you in prison. They're even going to kill you for my name's sake because the servant is not greater than the master. And if they treated me this way, they will treat you this way. And so Jesus reminded his disciples that they would face opposition. Jesus went on to say, these things I've spoken to you though, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage because I've overcome the world. We know that living for God is not always easy. In fact, Jesus said, beware if all men speak well of you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, God had one son without sin, but he did not have a son without trial and tribulation. Sometimes we hear today that if we'll only have enough faith, everything will go well for us in life. Have you ever heard that? Sure you have. If you only have enough faith, You're not going to have trials and tribulations. Folks, people who have said that, do they not read their Bible? The Bible says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And think about the lives of the apostles and the prophets. 
they had trouble. They had tribulation. If they had trouble and tribulation, who do we think we're supposed to be that we're not going to have it? And look at the Lord Jesus himself. He had trial and tribulation. Would you say that Jesus had enough faith? This argument that if you only have enough faith, you won't go through trial and tribulation. Did Jesus have enough faith? Of course he did. Did the prophets and the apostles have enough faith? Of course they did. And they still went through trouble. And so that argument, if you only have enough faith, you won't face trouble, doesn't really hold water, does it? The truth is, in this world, you'll have trial and tribulation because we live in a world that's upside down. We're trying to live right side up in a world that's upside down. And so as we live in this type of world, we're going to face opposition. In your home, you may have a spouse that doesn't agree with or appreciate your faith in Jesus. Sometimes in marriages, people face that. On your job, you may face opposition specifically because you are a believer. A number of our people from time to time tell me about trouble they're having at work because they're Christians. We're going to have trouble in this world. Folks, we need to be aware as believers that we've got to stand firm in our faith. And as William Carey said, William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, he said we must expect great things from God and attempt great things from God uh, for God. But again, know that as we do, we will experience trials. Now let's see what Nehemiah has to say about that here. As we look at this chapter, a couple of things I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see that opposition to God's work will always surface. Opposition to God's work will always surface. You may want to write down chapter 2 verse 10 because if you go back to chapter 2 verse 10 that's where we see that their opposition began. That verse says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this it displeased them greatly that somebody had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. What was the bottom line? They didn't want to see God's work go forward, did they? They didn't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. Now folks, that's like Satan today. Satan does not ever want to see God's work or God's people prosper in their efforts. You know, we can trace Satan's work all the way through the scripture and see what Satan has always been up to. Paul said to the Corinthians, we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Right away in the first book in the Bible, Genesis, what do we see Satan doing there in the garden? He's twisting God's word, right? He's painting God out to be stingy. God is keeping something from you that you really need. God is a killjoy. That was Satan's lie to Adam and Eve. 
And Satan came out and said, if you eat of the tree, eat of this tree, eat of the fruit of this tree, you're not going to die. God knows that in the day you eat of the fruit of this tree, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God. It was a lie. They did die. They died spiritually. They died physically. They were alienated from God. And they were alienated from one another, right? Then think about Job. How did Satan work in Job's life? He accused God that the only reason why Job was serving God was because God had built a hedge around his life. God take that hedge away. And Job will be just like other men. He'll curse you to your face. So God allowed, God allowed Satan to do that. Job didn't curse God. He praised God. Then Satan said, oh, touch his, touch his life, touch his health. Cause him trouble there and then he'll curse you. Still he didn't curse God. In Matthew 2, what did Satan try to do? Tried to kill the baby Jesus, right? Through Herod, the lies of Herod. And Herod, we know what Herod was going to do. He was going to kill Jesus because he was threatened by news of, of a, new, a new one born, king of the Jews. And so Herod ended up having all the babies two years of age and under killed to try to do away with Jesus. Satan was behind that. Satan is a murderer. Jesus said he's a liar and the father of lies and, and he's a murderer and he's been such from the beginning. And then in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, we see Satan attacking Jesus in the wilderness, trying to get Jesus to sin, to disobey God. Because had Satan won in that attempt, then Jesus wouldn't have been able to go to the cross and die for our sins. The picture there is Satan being the tempter. In Acts chapter 2, persecution breaks out against the church. And they're opposed, they're in prison. Some of them are put to death. Satan was the persecutor of the church. Again, what's Satan trying to do? He's trying to stop God's work. He failed. Then writing to the Thessalonians, Paul said to them, we tried to come to you more than once, but Satan hindered us. Satan put roadblocks in front of Paul and Paul's missionary efforts. Sometimes people in the church who are going on mission trips will, will talk about how when they were getting ready to go on a mission trip, all of a sudden the bottom fell out and they were encountering all kinds of stuff against them before they went. What's that? Satan's attacks. 
Ephesians 6, Paul says, We wrestle not simply against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. Revelation 12, we see that Satan is the one who accuses the brethren before God day and night. What I'm trying to get you to see is from Genesis to Revelation, we see a very consistent picture of the evil one, don't we? We see a picture of the evil one twisting, denying God's word and trying to come against God's people and trying to stop all of the missionary efforts of God's people and trying to subvert the gospel. You read something else that Satan did in the early church. He brought opposition from within in the form of heresy. If he couldn't destroy the church from without, he would try to get to the church from within by getting them to buy into different heresies and false teachings. That's what Satan tries to do. How does he do it? Well, he does it through direct agency. That'd be one way he does it. What do I mean by direct agency? By Satan himself being involved. He does it also through his host of workers in the spiritual world. Who's that? The demonic powers. Satan's got a whole host of demons. A third of the angels who fell with him. Sometimes Satan works through the agency of people. I've just mentioned Herod a moment ago. Who else could you talk about in the New Testament that was an agent of the evil one? Judas, exactly. We come to the book of Nehemiah, and who do we find? We're introduced to them here. Sanballat and Tobiah. They were the immediate neighbors to Jerusalem and Judah. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah was the governor of the Transjordan area, just to the east of the Jordan River. And through these... These human instruments, Satan worked. Satan worked in and through them to try to come against God's people. So direct agency, demonic powers, and other people sometimes. Jesus said wherever the wheat is sown, there'll also be what? The tares. And Jesus said it'll be that way to the end of the age. Opposition to God's work will always surface. Secondly, I want you to see with me tonight, opposition to God's work comes in various forms. Opposition to God's work comes in various forms. First of all, what do you notice there in the first three verses? What form did it come in? Come on, talk to me. What form did it come in? 
ridicule and mockery exactly. Thank you, Kathy. Kathy's awake tonight. Are y'all awake? (laughs) Mockery, ridicule. What's the point in the mockery and the ridicule? What are they trying to sow? They're trying to sow discouragement and doubt. Yes. British critic and author Thomas Carlyle called ridicule the language of the devil. The language of the devil is what he called ridicule. Warren Wearsby said, Some people who can stand bravely when they are shot at will collapse when they are laughed at. Shakespeare called ridicule paper bullets of the brain. Goliath ridiculed David. Jesus was mocked by the soldiers at his crucifixion. Have you ever been mocked? Have you ever been ridiculed for your faith in Jesus? Anybody in here? Sure. If so, you know what? You're in good company with the saints of old, right? Rejoice and be glad. Sanballat called them feeble Jews, meaning that they were literally in the Hebrew, he's he's basically saying you're, you're just withered. You're withered. You're like a bunch of withered, has been flowers. You think you're going to finish in a day? He was trying to get them to focus in on the magnitude of their task and trying to get them to see that their task was so huge they might as well give up now. I mean, what's the point? You're never going to get this done. Just go ahead and give up now. The world can see our weakness and they can ridicule us if they want to. But you know what they don't understand The people of the world don't understand that God delights in using weak instruments for his purposes, doesn't he? Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. God chooses the weak. God chooses the weak so that all the glory goes to Him and not to man. Now folks, if people ridicule us, you know what we need to do? We obviously need to pray for them. They're lost. And we can chase people in prayer when we can't do anything else. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? You can chase people in prayer and there is nothing they can do about that. And that's a praise, certainly. Don't grow discouraged in God's work. Folks, if you think about it, discouragement is what kept 
most of the children of Israel from being able to enter the promised land. Remember they sent the 12 spies in and 10 of them came back and said, we can't take the land, no way. Joshua and Caleb spoke up and said, sure we can. God's promised us and God's going to be with us. God will do this through us. But unfortunately, the people listened to the ten spies. And you remember what God said, okay? Then none of those who have said this or felt this way or believed this, none of them are going to enter into the promised land. You're going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until you die off. And then your children, whom you said would be devoured, they're going to go in and they're going to take the land discouragement kept the majority from experiencing God's promise and God's inheritance. Folks, whenever we take our eyes off the Lord and put our eyes on us, we'll grow discouraged. We'll say, God can't, uh, we can't do everything that God is asking of us. And that's because we've taken our eyes off of the Lord and we've focused on the wrong thing. Well, not only ridicule and mockery, but what other kind of instrument did they use? Look, beginning at verse uh, 10, they used fear, fear, 10 times, or just over and over and over again. People kept coming to them saying things like, they're going to attack us whichever way we turn. Now, some scholars feel like these were plants. These are plants that Tobiah and Sambalat have put there. Other Jews who kept coming to Nehemiah and the leaders saying, Folks, we can't do this. We can't do this. And so they tried to use fear. And then we see them using false accusations. Questioning their motives. Uh, again, that happened back in chapter 2, saying you're rebelling against the king. Actually, they weren't at all. In Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, it says, Then Samballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore you are rebuilding the wall and you're to be their king according to these reports. And you've also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. Sanballat and Tobiah just started using false accusations against the people and against Nehemiah. Folks, it's interesting how down through history, both Jews and the church of Jesus Christ have been bitterly, bitterly opposed. People of faith have been ridiculed. They've been mocked. They've been intimidated. 
People of faith have, have been slandered with false accusations. First, the Jews were bitterly opposed. Look at their history. How nation after nation has tried to destroy them. Why? Because they were God's chosen, right? As Jesus said in John chapter 4, salvation is of the Jews. Through them, as Paul says in Romans 9 through 11, God raised up a nation to be a witness to him. And then the Messiah was of Jewish blood as far as his earthly mothers. Paul says in Romans 9, theirs are the covenants, the law, the scripture, the savior. And so how has the world responded to them? With hatred. Do we see that continuing even today? Sure we do. It's the hostility that God said would always exist between Ishmael and Isaac. Now folks, I, I do want you to keep something in mind here. There are many Christian Arabs, okay? There's many Christian Arabs. In fact, I don't know if you realize this or not. I found out this recently from Dr. Steve Patterson in our church. He was over there on the digs. Um, Did you know by the governing laws in the city of Bethlehem, the mayor of Bethlehem has to be a Christian? Did you realize that? In Bethlehem, according to Steve... The mayor of Bethlehem has to be a Christian. Keep in mind that Israel has returned to her land in unbelief, just as the scripture pointed out. As Dr. Paige Patterson says, do not support everything that Israel does and do not oppose Everything the Arabs do. Things aren't quite that black and white. In fact, you support everything Israel does and oppose everything Arabs do, you might at times find yourself actually opposing your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, with that said, I do believe the land belongs to the Jews. Why? Because of Genesis 12, God's promise uh, to Abraham. Uh, Personally, I don't favor a two-state solution or dividing Jerusalem. Again, I think God gave it to the Jews. But again, something else to keep in mind that makes this whole thing really, really complicated if you think about it. Paul said to the Galatians that the church is now the Israel of God. If you're in Christ, you're the Israel of God according to the book of Galatians. 
Paul went to pains to show that the Jew is one who is one spiritually and not simply because of the blood flowing through his or her veins. And so if an Arab has come to faith in Jesus Christ, that means that that Arab is part of what? The Israel of God. You see how things can kind of get muddied, can't they? But again, I think the land, based on Genesis 12, I think the land belongs to the Jew. I think we need to love our Jewish friends. We need to pray for them. Everything about my faith in Jesus and your faith in Jesus grows out of the old covenant. I don't understand for the life of me how people can be anti-Semitic. But again, remember, Israel is currently in what? Unbelief. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for their eyes to be opened. We need to have compassion for them for the precise reasons Paul talked about at the beginning of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 10. Also, when it comes to persecuting Israel, think also of what the church goes through. We go through much the same thing. If we stand on the gospel, that is, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. What are we accused of? Being intolerant. By the way, truth will always be seen as exclusive. You can't have conflicting, exclusive ideas that are all true. It doesn't even make sense. The post-mod- One thing that makes no sense at all about the postmodern mindset, it says you can have two opposing sets of ideas in your mind And both of them can reside side by side. That's absurdity, isn't it? That you can have two opposing sets of ideas that are contrary to one another. You can hold to both of them and say both of them are true. That's the postmodern mindset though. That's the culture in which we live. And so in a culture like this, when we preach the truth of the gospel and we say Jesus is the only way, what are people going to say? Ah, you're narrow-minded, you're bigoted, you're intolerant. That's how they were with the early church too though, folks, remember. The Romans turned against the early church and slandered them They said when when the Roman Empire started declining, the Romans blamed Christians because they said the Christians would not burn incense to Caesar and worship all of the Roman gods. And so the Christians have made the Roman gods mad at us as a nation. And that's why we're declining as a nation. It's the Christians' fault. And so the Romans turned against them. They said the Christians are cannibals. Why? Because of the Lord's Supper. 
where Jesus says, this is my blood, this is my flesh. They accused him of incest because the way we call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and we would greet one another with a holy kiss. Some of you I'm not going to greet with a holy kiss, okay? Gavin, I'm not going to greet you with a holy kiss. Amen. But all sorts of slanderous things that the early church went through. What are we seeing today in our culture? Folks, is history repeating itself? You better believe it. No place for truth in the marketplace. You know, it started a couple decades ago, what? Manger scenes being removed from the public squares. Then the Ten Commandments removed. People are now mocking uh, any semblance of faith in society. And they'll try to say, oh, Christianity doesn't belong in the public square. That, that separation of, of church and state. How many times have you heard that? Our constitution has erected a wall of separation of church and state. Actually, those words are not in the constitution. I hope you know that. Those words were written by Thomas Jefferson in a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association. The Danbury Baptists were concerned over the the Episcopal Church, they were afraid that the Episcopal Church was going to be named the official state church in the new land and they had escaped the old land, the state church there. And Thomas Jefferson wrote to them assuring them that that was not going to happen. That there was going to be this wall of separation. And actually, when you read the, the, the words of our founding fathers, they wanted the Christian faith represented in public. They wanted the church to have a voice in the public arena. What they did not want was the government having a voice in the church. And that's what the First Amendment was all about. Today, the First Amendment's being reversed in meaning from what it was actually intended to do. The founders of our country and of public education in America even wanted boys and girls taught about Jesus Christ in the schools. Benjamin Rush, probably the most distinguished physician of his day, was also one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He published the first American textbook on chemistry. He also served as treasurer of the U.S. Mint from 1797 to 1813. He was a supporter for scientific education of the masses including women and a supporter of public medical clinics to treat the poor. He wrote in an article entitled Defense of the Use of the Bible in Schools and in that defense he said Christianity is the only true and perfect religion. He went on to discuss in his article that if the Bible were not read in the schools of America then the the nation would end up spending a lot of its time and resources on punishing crime. 
That's Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. The state of Massachusetts today, one of the most liberal states. Do you know that the state of Massachusetts made it law that all children were to be taught to read and write? Because the state of Massachusetts said illiteracy is a tool of Satan to keep people away from reading the Holy Scriptures. Illiteracy is a tool of Satan to keep people away from reading the Scriptures. And so Massachusetts said, they made it law, every boy and girl is to be taught to read. But you look at what's going on today. Hostile attacks against the church. Just like different times, different contexts, different situation to Nehemiah's day. But folks, are we not facing the same type stuff Nehemiah did in his day? Of course we are. Chapter 4, we see that their anger turned to hostility and further ridicule. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4, when, when, when this failed, we see in, in verses 7 and 8 that they stepped up opposition one more notch. What did they do? They started plotting actual attacks. And as I pointed out, it's believed they started hiring people to give false reports to discredit Nehemiah. Thirdly, I want you to see tonight, let opposition bring out the best in you. Let opposition bring out the best in you. Know your faith in Christ better than ever. Folks, in these days that we live in, learn your Bible. Please, learn your Bible. Learn doctrine. Know why you believe what you believe. Don't go through your life only having a superficial understanding of your Christian faith and of the Scriptures. Learn your Bible. Develop your devotional life. Share your hope in Christ in the most effective way that you can. Love your enemies. Pray and ask God to fight your battles for you. Notice that's what Nehemiah is doing in verse 4. Putting the whole matter in God's hands and asking God to fight their battles. And so Nehemiah was certainly not praying for personal vengeance. He was praying for God to vindicate his own name. And notice how they watched and prayed and put people on the wall with the weapons. Praying and yet they were prepared for battle at the same time. Prayer and action go hand in hand, right? They're not mutually exclusive. They were committing the whole thing to prayer 
And they had their weapons and they were ready to fight at the same time. Folks, we need to put on the whole armor of God. Paul said put it all on. That you might be able to stand in the evil day against the schemes of the wicked one. Opposition. You stand for your faith in Christ and you're going to face it eventually. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 All of those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Believers, if we are faithful and don't compromise with our culture... Sooner or later, in some way or another, we will face opposition. Be ready for it. And your opposition will mock you and ridicule you. They may slander you. They may plot evil things against you. They may do all of that. Just like they did to Nehemiah and his people. It's nothing new. Okay? It's nothing new. Again, who are we to think that we won't suffer or we're supposed to be above it somehow or another? You've got a great calling on your life and I've got a great calling on my life. And in this calling, we're to stand firm on God's truth and keep our eyes on Him. Focus on Jesus. Keep your hand to the plow. And don't let opposition bring discouragement to your heart. And that's another reason why Paul, uh, well, I say Paul, not Paul. But that's, of course, he said it too in places. But the writer of Hebrews, that's why the writer of Hebrews We ultimately don't know who that was. But that's why the writer of Hebrews said we're to gather together as a church family. Because we gather together, he said, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Because we come together as a church family to encourage one another and pray for one another. Why? Because out there, we come in to hear from out there having been opposed. And so we come in here and encourage one another and pray for one another. And that's one of the functions of a church family. Amen?